Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gatsi. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Will Ratliff, and he is the, I don't know what the technical term would be, but he basically is the leader of a ketamine clinic here in Austin called Transcend Clinic. And I have been recently diving deep into trying to understand what trauma is. And I've been working on a massive article that will hopefully be done. It, it actually will be done by the time that this podcast comes out. So if you're interested in what trauma is, how it happens, and how it can be healed, uh, go to my website and check out what is trauma. And this podcast just came at the perfect time because Will has sat with hundreds of people who have gone through the ketamine experience and he has seen firsthand how the animal body tries to heal trauma when it feels safe to do so. And we just get into what brought him to this line of work, what he sees in the clinic, and he you know, gets passionate about what he sees as the future of ketamine clinics in the country and what function they can offer. Because I think that one of the biggest things that we can do to improve our culture in every domain is to be able to recognize what trauma is, what its symptoms are, and how to heal it. And I believe that the intentional and intelligent use of ketamine is one of the powerful ways that we can start to face and heal trauma. And this podcast seeks to aim to give you guys some insight. So check it out. And the podcast is brought to you by my newsletter and my journaling course. And so if you want to support, go check out the courses, go check out the newsletter and share it with anyone that you feel it can be medicine for. Thank you guys so much for your time and for your attention. Enjoy the podcast. Love. Will, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, we have a very good friend in common named Paige. Shout out to Paige for making this happen. Shout out to Paige. And she's continued to tell me, you have got to talk to my friend Will. You've got to talk to my friend Will. And she told me a couple of weeks ago that she started working for you at a ketamine clinic. And she was telling me about the amazing work that was being done. And when she told me, I was like, get this motherfucking dude on my podcast. And now we are finally here in the office recording the podcast. Thank you for coming on, man. Well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, Paige is a amazing person. And it's pretty interesting that y'all have such a history. And that led to this meeting because I've been wanting to meet you for some time. Yeah. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So where do we get started? Yeah. So the question that I'd like to open up with is, 
let's say that you just finished doing something that gives you flow. And we just talked about a couple of what those things might be. And one involved you using a sword on me, but we won't get into that further. But let's say that you just finished doing something that really puts you into flow. And I come up to you and I ask you, what do you do and who are you? And that probably wouldn't be the order that I would ask you. I would probably ask you, who are you and what do you do? What would you say? Well, so I'm in flow. So let me imagine the scenario. So I like jujitsu a lot. And that's probably something that puts me in the flow more than anything. So I'm probably like in spandex, sweaty, smell pretty bad. Then you walk up. It's already a precarious situation. So <laughs> I would say probably wouldn't get into it. Honestly, I really usually don't tell, disclose what I do because it's a fairly controversial topic. But yeah. if I felt like disclosing that to somebody that. Uh, at, the, at the moment, uh, I would probably say if I actually looked at my life objectively, I have spent a lot of time working in all facets of trauma. Uh, in my earlier years, I focused a lot more on physical trauma. So I started out as a paramedic and and worked in rural EMS for a while. So, you know, physical trauma such as, you know, car wrecks, gunshot wounds, you know, traumatic amputation, you name the way you get hurt. And, uh, you know, that, that that's an interesting thing. And I transitioned into the hospital and then spent some time on a helicopter for many years as a flight paramedic and flight nurse. So... After a while, you start to realize that physical trauma, you know, it's, it's one thing to focus on, but psychological trauma is actually kind of more of the thinking man's game. And so for the last year, uh, I've spent pretty much all of my time um, essentially building and assembling a crew to be able to start one of the, I think, one of the best academy clinics in the nation. Um, and so it's Transcend Multimodality Ketamine Clinic here in Austin, Texas. And uh, I'm the operations manager of that. So I have a lot of control over what exactly happens. And so I'm also, you know, one of the clinicians there. So I'm one of the lead nurses and paramedics. So I do a lot of the sessions there. I spend most of my day administering ketamine to people and guiding them through the process, learning all about those depths. And that's how I am working on psychological trauma at the moment. This is really interesting. So um, what it feels like one of the breakthroughs in my personal understanding about psychological trauma is that if you imagine the psyche as a four-dimensional entity, like if you could see time in three-dimensional space, have you ever seen Donnie Darko? Yeah. Where they have the like tubes? Like... <laughs> If you could see someone's, you know, what we could call the what emotional body. What do you think our tubes body, are doing right now? Just staring at each other right now with this yeah. long line behind us going back 20, 30 <laughs> years. Um, but like, so the beginning of the tube would be like, you know, when you're an embryo and then the end of the tube is where you are right now. That whenever you incur trauma, like psychological trauma, it's as, it, it seems to function largely similar to physical trauma, but like it stays in that time period and this is something that we'll talk about much more and it's, you know, it's a nuanced subject, but your body has a set of reflexes that it's evolved to run in the face of like physical trauma. And that if it doesn't go through that entire process, there's like this like splinter in the four dimensional body that stays there and just keeps the like... Um, threat detection system online at this low boil 
And then the longer you go into the tube of the four dimensional being, if you haven't removed the splinter by completing the act, then you get all these weird symptoms that at first don't make sense. But when you look at if the organism is operating as if it's in the presence of a predator for 20 years, the biological and psychological stress that that would cause in the system is so profound that they might have autoimmune disorders, haven't been able to sleep well for 20 years. Um, you know, like if they hear a firework, they go instantly into like a defense posture that they took when they were at war. Um, and so I see this beauty in your development already that you got like up close experience with physical trauma and now you're working with psychological trauma and your body knows what it looks like for both. Yeah, I think that, you know, one way to take that too is not, I mean, just you're talking about the physical trauma kind of getting, you know, trapped in time. I also just think it's just like a really important, you know, uh, mechanism to occur. I mean, you know, as... Uh, a lot of these adaptations that happen as we experience these traumatic events are really useful in certain situations. Right. The problem is that we're just trying to operate, you know, normal daily life. And so, I mean, for my own self, I spent uh, a large portion of my life, I'm kind of like a space cadet uh, for the most part. And for me to try to like, you know, like land on scene and like get myself into a state of arousal to be able to like make really quick decisions is like not really me. And so I actually spent a lot of my time like figuring out how to gear myself up, you know, to be able to like really rapidly think and, and, and make huge decisions really quick and things like this. And so that's cool for that scenario, but it's not really cool when you're like at Walmart and like you're just on the checkout line and like all of a sudden you're just like, why the hell is my heart like jumping through my chest right now and, and just something set it off, some smell, something, whatever. And so a lot of my real interest, you know, from you know, all of this, is, you know, came from looking at my own symptomology of PTSD right. over time. So, uh, and, and realizing that those are things I worked really hard to build over time. But, um, and, you know, and mine is something that was kind of purposeful in that way. But, you know, for some people, it's something that kind of happened to them. But, there are real benefits, you know, of, of having that hyper arousal ability. It's just, uh, you know, trying to find some balance there, you know, and I think, you know, I've noticed that with my, my ADD as well. You know, one of the things that uh, I realized in the flight environment in particular, you know, ADD is really great for flight medicine. You know, when you're under night vision and you're trying to like check to see, you know, oh, is there aircraft over there? And then like, oh, hey, what's this vital sign? And like, oh, hey, you know, do I need to communicate something? Like that ability to jump around, like, is fantastic. But right, man, it's not just, a disorder if it's in yeah. the right environment. Yeah. Just, and one of the things that's been really alive for me lately is that symptoms is the wrong word. They're adaptations, and they become disadvantageous if used in the wrong context. Like, attention deficit disorder is not true if you're a flight medic. It's not true. It's awareness. And, and your attention is going where it needs to go. But if that is the predisposition of your physiology and you're an eight-year-old boy and you're being put inside of a classroom with no recess where you're being taught how to regurgitate symbols that you have no meaning of and then if you aren't quiet for seven hours in a row, the teacher doesn't know how to deal with you. So they report you to the psychologist who has been trained by a bullshit standard, which is something that I can go on a long tangent about, 
to essentially make you an easier student to deal with in the context where your neurology and your physiology doesn't match adaptively. I don't blame them, man. If I was a teacher, I'd be like, medicate every one of these little kids, man. Like, I got to get through an eight-hour day. You yeah. know what I mean? Just juice yep. them all up. No, but definitely don't don't agree with that. Uh, but so yeah, no. I mean, looking at them as adaptations and trying to find some some homeostasis there in people's lives. You know, that way, because a lot of people don't want their symptoms to be completely stripped away. You know, a lot of uh, you know, I took care of a triathlete patient really early on. She's like, you know, without my OCD, like I'm not gonna be able to do what I do. Right. You know, and I mean, because her training regimen and her diet and all this other stuff required some serious, you know, attention that. Uh, could be considered a pathology by some, but you know, for her, it's just kind of like her way of doing business. So, you know, treating her like that was one of her biggest fears was just like if I let too much of that go, if I get too much better, I'm really not going to be able to do my livelihood, you know. And so, um, you know, I think that you know the, the aim is to try to figure out how to you know just integrate these things and you know where can it be useful and yeah. and, and all and all of that. And so. I mean, I think that, it, you know, same with, you know, trying to be completely absent against alcohol as an example. Like sometimes that, you know, what most people who have drinking issues want is actually not to really stop drinking, but actually just not have it be a real problem for them to be able to still drink socially and all those other things. And I think it's like same kind of thing with these, you know, uh, symptoms or adaptations, you know, it's just trying to, you know, create some balance there, you know? And so right. I think and moving towards that is, is a lot better aim than just trying to eradicate it, you know? 100%. Like one of the things that constantly comes up in my like coaching practice is that whatever your trauma was, whatever your adaptations to those traumas were, they are your superpowers. They are the things that you are the most gifted and honed at if you can implement them consciously. If there's something that you do reactively and you can look back in the patterns in your life and you see that it constantly gives you the same outcome in relationships or constantly gives you the same outcome in business or constantly destroys your sleep, it's not being chosen, it's seizing you. But that healing is not the eradication of the adaptation. It's like the way that I described it on a call today is it's like these adaptations are like these beautiful magical blades that you have. Healing quote unquote, allows you to create conscious handles that you can put on the blade. If you don't have a handle though, you out of fear, just grab the blade, start bleeding and start fucking swinging it around. And it's sharp. It, it works if you're in like the right context where there's an actual tiger attacking you. But if you're in a business meeting with a potential investor and they said something that triggered you because it's how your dad spoke to you and you destroy the whole thing, like that wasn't adaptive. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's, well, you know, so I think that that's part of so much of what is possible with kind of the treatment that we provide is the ability to really like fragment somebody for a, a short period of time where they can really actually kind of look at themselves from a distance to the point where it's like, okay, I really identify with, with this or whatever else it may be. And then just try to figure out, you know, where that even came from originally. Like right. that's so hard to do consciously and really painful, you know, for, for some. And so the ability to just kind of pull themselves out for a little while and like look objectively at their life, not in the, in the actual thing. And that's, you know, essentially what I spend my whole time trying to do is, is, is aim for that level. And so, 
you know, my, my biggest job is to, to actually administer, you know, uh, ketamine to people. Intravenously? Uh, mm-hmm, intravenously. So we, I see it as the best way. It's very cumbersome. It's very medical. And, um, you know, in, in psychedelic medicine, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of push to, to unmedicalize, you know, a lot of it. And I think that that's, uh, you know, I wish it could be that way completely, but I think there are some some benefits of some of the advents that medicine has come up with as well. I and mean, obviously, coming out of the of the medical world, right? You know, some of it has come with me. But when we administer IV, I get the opportunity to the way I see it is is like so. You know, a fully dissociative dose of ketamine you know, will knock somebody completely unconscious. They can't really do anything. They're not here. You know, uh, lights are on, but no one's home. You know, they're breathing, but you know, nothing's happening. Right? So. Um, that can actually be useful in, in some in some treatment modalities, but what's a lot more useful is you know so if no ketamine is normal consciousness and that's completely unconscious, finding this nexus somewhere in the middle where you're actually literally able to kind of interact with some more of these unconscious processes consciously and work with a therapist at the same time, it's like this super therapy on steroid thing and. It's just amazing to watch what the process looks like for people. I mean, because sometimes it's very uh, obscure. And that's what was like getting into this from a nursing perspective and like watching, you know, uh, therapists do their thing. Like you would expect like an exchange that makes sense. So like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, like uh, this thing happened to me. And then like, oh, yeah, I could see how that would make you feel. And, you know, like you would expect this like really like typical transaction. Cause and effect type thinking. But with ketamine, it can be because the unconscious mind is a, a weird landscape. Yeah, uh, uh, landscape. It can be, you know, quite a bit more symbolic and 100%. things like this. I've had, uh, you know, patients that, well, it's sort of like a dream, right? So well, I was just about to talk about that. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we're really operating in these ranges where it's really cool, you know, because we're like basically having a lucid dream with somebody, you yep. know, uh, you know, where we get to join in on their lucid dream yep. and help them navigate it, you know, yep. but, um, so like in a dream, you know, I like think like, you know, I tell patients this all the time, like it's, it's really an unconscious process. So, you know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. So, you know, sometimes you can be like in a fight with, with you know, a significant other or something like this. And then you have this dream where you're like, you know, I don't know, like building surfboards with your landlord and it like doesn't really make any sense. But then you like wake up in the morning and like you have resolve over this like thing. Yep. <laughs> and it's like super like, w- what the hell does that dream have anything to do with this situation? But that's, that's how we process. We yes. create these odd scenarios in our dreams, things like this. Uh, and, you know, if you really look at it, you know, it's like, okay, I can, I can kind of see. Ketamine space is very similar um, in that sometimes you have patients that are just, you know, uh, you know, it might be that they're like, you know, going scuba diving and they're just getting weighed down by kelp and they're like cutting the kelp away. Yep. And then like, you know, it, it's kind of sounds like some process is occurring and it's yep. funny because like afterwards they'll like feel like liberated from something yep. and you're just like, what the hell happened? You know what I mean? Like they cut away fake kelp, you know, in their, in their space or whatever, you know, and, and, and now all of a sudden right. this thing is solved. So like seeing that happen over and over again for people where like there isn't an exchange that necessarily makes sense all of the time. Not logical sense, but you know, symbolic Yeah, sense. like in the way that we normally consciously process things and would expect healing to occur, but to see it happen in this right. abstract way is just fascinating to me, you know? Dude, I love this point. And so um, 
dreams are one of my favorite things to work with with people like it's it's one of my favorite things in life period and i'm obsessed with trying to understand the psyche and trying to understand the psyche you know the majority of it is unconscious and what i have found is learning how to interpret and engage with my dreams has get, it has been the single most effective tool to help me navigate deep psychedelic experiences like i did ayahuasca for the first time last year and I felt this like effortless grace in that space because I chose to engage with it as if it were a waking dream. And there is some type of intuitive sense and grammar to the unconscious symbolic unfolding. And one of the things that I constantly explain when I try to explain how dreams operate is that We've only had language like the last 100,000 years of our evolutionary history. But before that, we still interacted with each other effectively for millions of years. And without language, what we had is we had felt sensations in the body and we had images. And that's the main communicative language of the unconscious is emotions and images. And our our genetic structure has been engaging with the natural world for millions of years. And so we tend to use symbols that mirror processes in nature or even use like animals or trees or water or whatever to represent aspects of ourselves to ourselves. And so I'm really interested in Carl Jung and like all of the stuff that he got into. And <clears throat> what he found after he studied dreams for a while is he created what's called active imagination, which is the main thing that he used in his, in his modality when he tried to heal or work with people. And essentially what he would do is he would try to get them into a trance state, you know, and you can do that through hypnosis. And hypnosis is so less weird than most people think it is. Like you can get someone into hypnosis just by talking in a rhythmic way where you invite them to feel certain things and to relax. And then you ask them to imagine. And then their imaginal state, like imagination is one of the weirdest things that we take for granted because we just do it effortlessly, but that he would have them recall the most powerful dream that they've had recently. He would ask them to imagine that dream and then he would ask them like where the dream ends, what happens next? And, th and this would go on for hours. And like it would take them through all the things that they needed to do symbolically to show up to whatever the obstacles were in their life at the moment. And what I hear you saying is that you are seeing firsthand that there seems to be a intuitive healing intelligence in everyone's psyche that if you give it the right container, it will tell it will do what it needs to do. And like a good guide is just a guide. It's just trying to like hold the container for the individual for them to resolve their own shit. Well, if you want a job um, doing what we do, that's largely what I'm looking for and people to understand. So what I believe with the process, this whole, because I, I largely function as a guide as well. I administer and I help guide and the therapists do the therapy portion. Uh, they, they chime in when it gets therapeutic, but understanding the ketamine space quite well and being able to guide people through it and understand where they're at um, is, so what I feel like I really do well is that I put on a persona 
that I am the type of person, I explain to them my history, I explain to them what I'm able to take care of, and I create a container for them where I'm like, look, there isn't anything that can happen to you medically. There isn't anything that I can't take care of. There isn't anything that, you know, if a burglar comes in this front door, I'm going to kick their ass. If the building burns down, I'm going to drag you outside. You can go completely inside yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think when you create where they believe that, they believe that fully, that they really can slip away deep within themselves for a portion of time um, and and just do that process, you know, with the assistance pharmacologically, but I think it could probably happen, you know, unpharmacologically as well. It can, yeah. Um, you know, uh, with that assistance, that's where the work is done. It's not us. It's not us like, you know, uh, I don't know, we don't like peer over and like, tell us about your childhood, you know, or like whatever it may be. We just invite them to really take that deep dive. And I'm not exactly sure what happens. And that's what I love about what I do because I watch it happen over and over again and I see people get better in the process, but... Like we literally just have somebody in a recliner with an IV academy going and sometimes it looks like an interdimensional transport device. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the goofiest version imaginable, uh, but it, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I get pretty woo-woo on it sometimes because I'm not exactly sure what is happening right. during that stage. It 100% is a portal. Yeah. 100%. And it, it just gets opened up when you actually, because naturally when you, we have treated patients of, uh, of many different ages uh, with no psychedelic experience of any kind. So naturally, when they think about the idea of, you know, altering their consciousness to this level, and I'm talking, you know, 16-year-old, 84-year-old, mm. no psychedelic experience, you know, we've treated a lot of different types. There's going to be a lot of hes- hesitation towards, like, really dipping in. For sure. And it takes time. That's why there's repetition. You know, we'll do usually five or six sessions with somebody. And I watch it evolve through time, you know, their ability to. And one of the fascinating things is the dose won't change very oftentimes. But in those latter sessions, they finally take start taking those deep dives yeah. within themselves. Yeah. And it's, I'm not sure what happens on, in within those depths, but things change. And... I think for some, it really just stops the momentum of their current patterns right? and just allows them to just kind of come back online and just like, do I want to continue the momentum of what's been going on with certain things? Do I want to continue to identify with this one thing? Is this pattern really still serving me, et cetera? I think it's opportunity to do that, you know? And I mean, I just think it's crazy that, yeah, you know, 2020 feels like the future, I guess, but... Uh, we, we've literally created this sort of like reset button, you know what I mean? For people's lives and, and, and where they can architect from there. And it's just like, it could be anything though. I mean, I really do feel like to a certain degree, like, you know, this could be any form of ritual. It just happens to be this. It just happens to be some guy named Will who's administering ketamine in some place who creates this container for people to take this deep dive. But I mean, you know, people could do this in a thousand formats. And I think that through the spectrum of time, that has been the case. It's just we've lost that. You know, we we just don't uh, engage in these types of ceremonies in our society or value them anymore. But this was like, it could have been dancing around a fire. It could have been a full moon ceremony. It could have been a million things. And then now it's just, you know, we got real technical with it, you know. um, And, you know, it's more pharmacologic. And we, you know, we're checking all the boxes from a medical legal standpoint and all this other crap. But... You know, that's, it's really still fundamentally the same thing. Right. And the thing that gets me so motherfucking excited is that 
the psyche is it seems to always be seeking to in the same way that an acorn is going to use anything in its environment to try to become an oak tree no matter what you plant it in it is as as long as there is life force pulsating through it it will use whatever it can that corporations and capitalism in this weird twisted way that it's been shown in the last 50 or 60 years has tried so hard to put concrete over the soil of the acorns but like it's bursting through the cracks and like ketamine being administered in the western world in 2020 through an iv in a recliner is like a modern echo of the tribalistic initiation dance ritual around the fire where you acted out a myth that the elders told you that when you acted out you get to be heroic for the first time as a 16 year old boy and it teaches you how to hold that energy in your body and that whatever the traumas are that happened in your life if you did not act the way that you know was like and what's weird is that we even have this sense of like there was a better way to act there was a solution even if i didn't do it there's some part of me that knows it and there's some part of your psyche that is waiting to complete the action in the imaginal realm and from a very technical standpoint your body will respond to an imagined scenario as if it were happening in the present moment if you connect to it deeply enough and like a really clear example is like if you imagine your partner got killed in an accident because you haven't heard from them or whatever, your body will respond as if you just saw your partner die. And that that's the power of the imaginal realm. And that when you give people the right container, they will do or something does them that needs to in order for them to, you know, take out that splinter in their four-dimensional energy body that happened seven years ago that allows them to not recreate the trauma again. I think I've been thinking a lot about imagination lately too in relation to one thing that is, um, you know, I didn't get a, uh, you know, any training from a therapeutic standpoint, you know, at any time. So I, I, sitting in on these sessions all day every day can be uh, really initially I was even noticing like some kind of physiological symptoms of like wow I actually even kind of feel ill like we you know because you're going there with people right. over and over and over again and I think that therapists get good training of how to you know actually create that boundary and um, you know continuously do this work for years and years and they, you know they're taught and tra trained a lot of this but I never really was I was trained quite of the opposite you know as a nurse it's just like you care as much as you can you know and and until you burn out and get sick. Uh, and in that culture, there's some incredibly poor coping mechanisms. It's mostly right. just like, you know, I've got my wine. And it's, it's not a great culture. Way worse than EMS uh, by far. But, but anyway, um, what I've realized is that, you know, we have quite a lot of, we have three therapists on staff that take, depending on the client, a bit more of a shamanistic type approach. Uh, or at least, you know, some are leaning in that direction, would you it would say. And if the client is interested and willing, they'll go all the way. And it's pretty interesting because as an entity, we're largely ran by an army colonel named Dr. Cord Cunningham, 
Um, so it's kind of funny that, you know, uh, under the operation of an it. army colonel, you know, we actually have like shamanistic practice in the underbelly as well. It's so funny. It reminds me of Avatar. Like if you imagine that general was like got to run some base on uh, Pandora, but then the people under him were actually using the Shavin or whatever, or not the Shavin, but the blue people's technology to heal soldiers. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, I mean, what is the one thing that a shaman and an army colonel can agree on? It's ketamine, right? Like, <laughs> like you know what I mean? It's such yeah. a weird thing. And so, but anyway, I, I was reflecting, you know, how difficult it is to kind of repeatedly go through these sessions and, go there with people, but not bring it home. And, you know, recently I was reflecting a lot on this and at least in my mind, a big piece of, I, you know, a lot of, I, I they're largely mentors to me have explained to me about using some of these more shamanistic practices of energy clearing and other things like mm. this. And, you know, that's mm. not really, uh, fit within my belief system, um, you know, all the way, but, um, but I'm, what I'm realizing is it works. And the reason why I think for at least for me is you are utilizing, you know, so this is an important variable, right? So it's one thing to just, just burn the thing, burn the sage, the kapal, the cedar, whatever it is, um, or, you know, place the rose water, whatever it may be. But they, the second component of that is to imagine these things exactly. falling off. Exactly. And I believe that that's kind of how you communicate with that unconscious mind of like, hey, exactly. this didn't happen to you. This isn't my energy. This isn't something I'm bringing home. This exactly. is, you know, and utilizing that as just a, a symbolic, you know, thing as a means to communicate to the unconscious uh, of what you're really trying to get out because you have to communicate with it. And that, and, uh, to me, the imagination is just how you do that. Exactly. I just want to say exactly like three more times that, um, it seems to be that the reason ritual ever even manifested as a behavior in humanity is that it is a embodied way to force imagination. Like that's why we have ritual. Yeah. And it's like the unconscious mind is so incredibly powerful that we have to try to scientifically exercise it out of every study that ever involves human consciousness and healing. And we call it the placebo effect. I love talking about placebo effect. We, we could talk about it for the next fucking four hours. So I think it's fascinating. So I think there is a large variable uh, of what we do that is placebo. And that doesn't mean that anything we're not that we're doing isn't legitimate or whatever else. Right, maybe. and that's why I think the word needs to be changed because essentially what you're saying is what we're doing is we're working with the unconscious and we're allowing the unconscious to heal them. What I've realized is that you know what is the indication for for ketamine treatment exactly? Like you know, of course these individual mood disorders like oh depression, PTSD, anxiety. Okay, but people come in with a specific idea what this is going to do for them. And if that is a really strongly held belief, a lot of times that's what it does. Right. So for some, it's like, hey, I really need to move on from, you know, this death uh, of a close one that I can't get over, this relationship that I, you know, et cetera. And that's what they experience. Um, there is a readiness that they come in with, you know, um, and in that way, I don't ever want to tell them that it's not going to do that. You know what I mean? And, uh, so my, my point is, is I just think that 
I don't ever play up what we do or anything like that to like, you know, well, so I've experienced placebo effect. I, well, let me talk about this one study. So one of my favorite studies I've ever read, I, I wish I could actually tell you what exactly it was right now as I'm in front of me and I read it in a while, but it's talking about like more nocebo effect. So it was a study where they actually were uh, going over uh, basically they were trying to find, you know, t- testing pain medications versus placebo. And so they had chronic back pain patients and they said, um, basically, you know, here is, they had different groups. So they had the group that actually received a pain medication. They told them it was a pain medication, a group that received a pain medication. They told them it was a placebo, mm-hmm. a group that received a placebo and told them it was a placebo. You know, who got the best, uh, relief of pain? Try to take a guess. Uh, the placebo that they were told was a pain medication. The placebo group that was told it was a placebo. Interesting. Here's the reason why. So the people that do pharmacological studies, they do a lot of them. This is what they do a lot of time for their side hustle. So they, you know, they, you got the person that walks in the room and like, this is a placebo. Um, they're like the patients. It's their hustle. Yeah. So my point it's, is, is okay. you know, they're like, uh, they're like, oh man. I just received a placebo. I've never been told I'm going to receive a placebo in a study. Bullshit, this is a fucking placebo. This isn't a placebo. I got the real thing. And they received, they experienced more pain benefit because they didn't believe that it was a placebo. So they like anti-placebo affected themselves or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So they, they, you know, they actually amplify the placebo effect because they're like, there's no way this is a placebo. I do these studies all the time. You know, they don't tell you it's a placebo. That's fascinating. So anyway... Nocebo, placebo, these are all really fascinating things. And then it always begs the question of like, why do you even need the pill, right? You know what I mean? Like, why do you need the symbolic thing? And and actually, you know, when we were talking about imagination earlier in these, you know, energy clearing practices, that was actually something that, you know, one of, person I consider a mentor to myself explained that she's like, you know, once you get advanced enough with this, like all of that does just turn back into symbol again. Like you don't necessarily need the right. burning of something You just need to say no, like that's not my energy. Like you can just literally do it, you know, uh, with with simply that. You actually don't need that, you know, pill for a placebo, et cetera, type affecting. We don't need the symbolic gesture anymore. You know, you just actually gain the ability to do that with your imagination. Man, I love that so much. And it, it really is lighting me up. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is like, I got into like uh, Western magic with like a CK, like not pull a bunny out of a hat, but like um, I I wanted to know what are they actually doing? And so I read a bunch of books and I finally found a book that actually articulates like what the most common magic with the CK rituals were that like the mystery schools were doing. All of it is imaginal you basically do practices to hone your ability to concentrate, which is the same as yoga. And that once you get to the place where you can hold your focus, then you imagine certain things. And the core ritual that all the mystery traditions and the Western magic schools, like in order for you to even begin to be taught more advanced ones, you have to learn how to do this one. And it's called like the Hesser Ward of Protection, like L-E-S-S-E-R. And essentially what you do is you do a bunch of things to kind of set your internal space, but you imagine like you call in the four directions and then you call in the four archangels. And I don't know their names off the top of my head, but you imagine that they're hundreds of feet tall, that they are under your command and that they put this magical light shield around you. 
and you do, and it, it takes like 45 minutes to do this and you do this every day. And that the idea is like any practice that you do that allows you to emotionally and imagistically connect to either protection or power or influence or whatever it is, your physiology responds to it as, as if it were true. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's really interesting. So, man, magic tricks. Where should we go with that? Well, so here is a, a series of questions that I'm really interested in. You said that you've been watching people do, you know, go through this experience over and over and you start to see a pattern. Can you kind of explain, like, what is the pattern that you are seeing if you had to aggregate all of the experiences that you've watched into kind of like stages. Like what are the pat what's the pattern that you are seeing from people who begin and then end a series of ketamine experiences at your clinic? So I would say that from an outside perspective, one of the things that I'm seeing over and over again is in and around control. So if you were to, you know, so you had someone who's scared of heights. All right. You would slowly bring them up to higher and higher heights. I, mean, I actually was pretty scared of heights when I was a kid. Um, it's pretty funny to inevitably do like flight medicine where we dealt with it. Uh, in fact, I used to even fly with a guy who was pretty, pretty scared of heights. And at like 3,000 feet, he was like good to go. We get up to 8,000 and he was just like freaking out. Interesting. It's just funny how you can like, uh, I don't know, in incrementally just, you know, deal with this. But anyway, um, in relation to ketamine, ketamine largely strips people's control away. I mean, right. you literally, you know, in the, in, the, in the peak of the experience, you're not going to be able to get up and walk around. You're not going to be able to defend yourself in any form or fashion. You have to rely on the people that are there to take care of you in every kind of way. That's why I talk to people about, you know, hey, if a burger walks in here, I'm going to handle it. Like there is, you know, you have to completely let your guard down to be able to go through this. And in the peak, I mean... The only thing that you're left with, you know, in these kind of upper levels of dissociative states and you can hear, you don't know exactly what's going on because you is not a thing anymore and um, you can feel your breath. That's about all you got. And that's kind of, you know, the realm you're dwelling in for a portion of time. And so it can be really confusing for people, you know, um, a lot of times. So my point is, is, to be able to really dip into that stage, you have to practice that relinquish of control. Right. So a lot of what we do is, you know, when we initiate the infusion, you know, it takes about two minutes before anybody starts feeling anything. They get hit with that, you know, first warm buttery feeling. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I can do this. But at about 10 minutes, you know, the experience will be all the way on. And during that portion of time where they're actually kind of dipping in to that, that level where it's all the way on, we have them just sort of, at least I like to explain to them to just they're going through these mantras within within themselves. Sometimes we do this with them. Sometimes they're doing it internally as they get more and more experienced with it, where it's just like, this is okay to surrender to this. Everything that I'm feeling right now is completely normal and okay. It's okay that I don't know what's going on. And they just start, you know, self-soothing themselves into the state where they let go of control finally. And this is, an, we do this slowly. You know, we don't do this on the first go. Like eventually we get there to the point where someone is okay with accepting being dissociated. And I don't mean we shoved them into dis dissociation. I mean, that's what most places do. We help them to accept that and they go then there themselves. We just unlock the window. They open up the window and they go in, you know, and that's a big difference between that. 
Uh, it's because right. when they, uh, when they really fully let go of control and just start flowing with it and 100%. they let go of all resistance and it becomes smooth and they see that that's actually what happens when you let go of control that literally, you know, like the experience stabilizes and just like in life, when we can just let go a little bit and just, you know, let it fly, be okay with, you know, we experience a completely different reality, you know? And I think that that's kind of a big piece of what's happening is they're practicing this ability and they're slowly immersing themselves into being more comfortable in an unconscious level with being out of control. It's so one thing to like consciously be like, oh yeah, you know, control. unconsciously being okay with control. And there's this flexibility that comes with it with the ego. So, uh, you know, one of our therapists says, you know, it's like, a, it's like a rubber band, right? So, you know, the first time we do one of these ketamine experiences, you know, we kind of pull our band and wants to snap back, you know, and we just keep pulling it and eventually it becomes a little, a little bit more flexibility in there, you know? And so that's how you get that balance. When I do need to gain some control over a situation, I have the ability to do that, you know, and I know that that's there. I know that that's always there, but I also have the ability to be completely okay with not. And so to me, that's the thing that really seems to really pay out long-term for people is just gaining that ability to be okay with being out of control with their given situation in 100%. life, which like in our current world situation, you know what I mean? Like we're dealing with a lot of that right now. Like there's a lot of variables that people can't control. They're like, my job has got me, you know, laid off or, you know, all of these things that just happened to them, right. you know, out of nowhere and yeah. being all right with where this is flowing and where this is headed. And that seems like why ketamine has the reputation that it has, at least before it started to get the scientific validation and understanding, is that if you take too much ketamine at a party or too much ketamine at a concert and you quote unquote go into a K-hole, you are in a situation where it is not safe to release control. And so you're resisting and fighting the experience the entire time. And it's terrifying if mm -hmm. it's strong enough, because if it's strong enough, it doesn't matter what you do, you are not stopping it. And it also seems to be like one of the deepest like healing responses that comes from doing any psychedelics well with intention, with ceremony, with guides, is that it teaches you the magic of surrendering. And it also seems to be that it's the prerequisite to get to that subconscious subliminal space where something else inside of you has the intelligence to start dreaming for you the symbolic actions that need to be taken to heal. And that in order to even get to that place, the ego has got to step off the throne, you know? Absolutely. I mean, one of my, so, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome watching people first time experience ego death you know, people who, I mean, of all walks of life get to experience this. This is like, it's really fun, you know, to be able to actually have these conversations with people after they just had the most significant moment of their entire life. So when I hire new people, it's like, that's what is so challenging is to have them to be able to hold the sacred. It's like, right. this person is going to come in here. They've been working a nine to five. They've been like, they are in the matrix. And then they're going to, in this two hour window of time, at some point in here, experience the most significant event that they've ever had in their life, full ego death. And then they're going to take an Uber home. And like, we need to hold this little, you know, window extremely sacred. It's, you know, it is. I mean, 
this is a thought I have a lot. All right, you know the, the third. I think one of the largest pyramids in the world is a Bass Pro Shops. Oh yeah. Yeah. Transcend Ketamine were a couple of small clinics, real tiny, like eight hundred eighty square feet. Um, that's hilarious yep. if you think about it, because I mean, it really shows like what we value in our society. You know that. I mean, Jesus. I mean, like, I just feel like maybe. Like fishing's really cool. I like it, but I mean, like, this is drastically more important. I just 100%. think that you know there should be temples around this stuff, and at one point in time, there probably were. One hundred percent. And it's so. This is a great point. Architecture, without us realizing it, the same thing with rooms, the same thing with houses, function in the same way to the unconscious mind. What rituals do? They imply to the unconscious mind how to feel and how to imagine in this space. And if we created architecture around our healing centers that implied the sacred, that implied awe, you would see the quote unquote placebo effect. You would see the healing of anything that you do. Like if you took the exact same procedures that we do in a hospital, but you put it inside of a temple and that the architecture reflected the sacred, but you did everything else the exact same, my intuition would be you would see greater healing effects in all the modalities, even the ones that don't work very well, because the architecture implies to the unconscious sacredness. Yeah. That's one of the hard parts too is like, you know, people get on Reddit and they're like, oh yeah, this person, they like said they were, you know, getting uh, jabbed by, you know, whatever large bananas, you know, and it was horrible for them or you know, these out outrageous sort of, you know, uh, you know, because somebody has a you know, hard time and experience, they're going to like get on a little bit and tell everybody about it, right? So these people, they do their individual research and I'm trying to like clear through all that crap and be like, no, we need, you can approach this completely open-mindedly is what this is going to be for you. You're going to have your own individual thing. And I feel like oftentimes they come in with some sort of expectation of what it might be and they believe that more than they're going to believe me sometimes, you know? So it's like something I'm always battling is what like somebody, their initial assumption of what this is going to be like. Yeah. But yeah, I just think it's hilarious that, you know, like we, in our society, in our culture, like with what we value and everything else, like that essentially... I mean, this is obviously a really interesting thing and it's growing and, and, and whatever. And there's probably going to be much larger. Ketamine's not going anywhere. Um, it's just going to grow uh, in, in its ability. And I really do hope that extremely much better companies than ours come in and, you know, corporate or not, but do it really, really well and put these things all over like Starbucks because it could do a lot for this world. Um, you know, I think about that all the time, you know, I, I just, it's frustrating. You walk, you drive through traffic and I see what people are dealing with. I just know that if I just got the opportunity to put them in my chair and have them talk to my people, they'd be different people by the end. Yep. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, it's uh, coming Yeah, and it's here. So, you know, anyway, I think that we don't have our temple yet. We don't have our big pyramid or anything like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, we're slowly getting it going and and, um, and it needs to be done right. And actually, in relation to the ketamine industry as a whole, we're talking about corporate and all those other things, there are, I mean, it's a massive, you know, massive topic to, to try to figure out how you do expand this well, you know, because our model is largely, we do this completely right. Uh, and that sometimes makes it a bit more expensive. And, you know, it's private pay. It's not covered by insurance or anything like that. Um, the 
best way to do this is, you know, with a therapist. I think that every single ketamine clinic that doesn't have mental health providers on staff should be shut down tomorrow. Those are recreational places. That is not okay. Um, you know, there are plenty of places that people that get better doing that for sure. They're doing their own individual self therapy, but first rule of medicine, right? Do no harm. Right. And so, uh, that's broken every fucking day. If you, yeah, if you don't, so I, 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 I take, you know, patients, I had a call from a patient call in not too long ago and she explained that she intaked with another place and they never even told her that this was a psychoactive or psychedelic substance whatsoever. Could you imagine all of a sudden sitting down in a chair and being like, I'm going to get my migraines under control or, you know, whatever it is that she came in for. And all of a sudden ended up deep in the ketamine universe and having all kinds of things bubble up and have never been informed that that was what was about to happen. That's not okay. It's malpractice. Yeah. And furthermore, if we're really practicing defensible medicine where, you know, somebody actually does have some sort of diagnosable condition, you know, not just giving it to anybody, you know, uh, we have no idea what unraveling is going to occur when we do somebody's first session, you know, and we need to be completely prepared to support them in what happens. So, you know, if they might have a lifetime of, of tra- traumatic events of any kind, sexual trauma, physical trauma, et cetera, all of those things may come out in their first session. And we can't just be like, all right, you know, see you next week. Like that needs to be heavily supported. And if there are places, I, I literally don't understand how those places function. Like I would love to see, like have a, a fly on the wall on how those places actually work because people are unraveling all the time in those places and there's no backing. There's not mental health people around. It's ran by an anesthesiologist. It's ran by a CRNA, a certified registered nurse anesthetist or something like this. And I just don't even say how they function because all the time, you know, we have, we need that clinical oversight with, with somebody is actually having a, you know, a difficult time after. And it's okay to have a difficult time after and unravel and let's put those pieces back together. But to do that to somebody and not have that backing, that's, that's not okay. I mean, anyway, in in my opinion, so I, I just think that as complicated as it is to do it the way that we do it, it, I can't imagine doing it any other way. Yeah. And I just hope that the standard in the industry is a lot more like what we do as the future comes and patients gravitate towards that. Because it'll be more effective and the patients will choose it. I hope so. Because otherwise, the other option is is you get lots of that. Just people on Reddit like, man, I went there, it was freaking horrible. And, And we lose the capacity to actually effectively do this work, you know, over time. And so... Um, one of the things that I, you know, like about maps, you know, uh, working to, with, with MDMA is that they're legalizing MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Yes. That is so smart. And I'm so glad that they're doing that yep. because they're not just like MDMA, nope. you know, it's MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And I wish it was the same with ketamine because that's not the case. Ketamine is the modality. We just happen to be like kind of good at it and doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, but that shouldn't be the case. What should be legal is ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. This is why you should be on more podcasts because people who know should be talking about it. Yeah, and I don't like talking, uh, but you're right. So There's more knowledgeable people need to talk about it. Yes. Uh, something that came up is, do you have any type of community for the ketamine clinic where people who undergo this can talk to each other? 
this is like something I want to develop so much. I mean, the other thing is, is like as cool as ketamine and everything else is, like I have, I had a patient call not too long ago. We did a series of sessions. After about two or some odd months, he calls and he's just like, hey man, I'm kind of feeling back to kind of how I was. Should I come in for more ketamine? What should I do? And I was really honest with him. I said, you know what I think you got more out of anything out of this? You haven't seen anybody in a really, really long time. And you came into this clinic and we laughed and we joked and we had fun and we had a bonding experience. And you talked to the therapist and ultimately at the end of the day, what you got was social interaction. And I don't think you need more ketamine. I think you need to figure out how to communicate with somebody. Right. And, and, and actually have that. So like ideas that are popping up for me is like, um, if you guys could get a communal space where you start a garden or you have like a weekly meetup at Zilker just to like play, like, but that it's initiated through and only people who are invited are people who have gone through this process and just give them some activity to do together. Like what's really interesting is when you work with people who have um, very deep addictions, the roots almost always trauma. And there's this one clinic where, you know, they basically just offer them the interpersonal relationship with the mental health professional. But then there's all these flyers at the front of all these different like community building programs that the clinic works with. And one of them was rebuilding a lot like an abandoned lot and turning it into a garden. And what they found was that getting people just together to do a simple act that to our animal body signifies growth and development, which is tending to the land, improved their, um, like all their mental health scores more than working with the mental health professional. And so like an idea, you know, it's like, if you could somehow find a co-op or something or like a farm thing or a garden area and like create a relationship with them where you invite the people who come through your clinic to like go do some community building stuff outside because that seems to be something that is an option in the time of COVID. I mean, now needed more than ever, right? And it's difficult to pull off with, you know, a lot of our patients are deeply concerned with COVID to the point where they're just wrecking their mental health. And yeah, it's just tough to watch and, and, and difficult. You know, so one thing that I didn't talk about that I do a lot at the clinic is I, we were about like one third ketamine, one third therapy and one third lifestyle. And my big focus is lifestyle work. So I really think that generally speaking, we need to come up with something actionable at the end of the day. We can talk about things. We can go on, you know, big, you know, journeys. We can do all this stuff. Okay. Like now what? You know what I mean? And to me, that's ultimately what I do. And what actually frustrates me is that most people only kind of have the capacity to really change like one kind of thing at a time, you know? And a lot of times when I do a lifestyle assessment on somebody, I'm like, man, you need to start exercising, get your diet together. You got to quit smoking. You know, you got to do all these things. You got to get some social interaction going. And if you hit somebody with that, when they're in a deep state of depression, like, first of all, they're not going to listen to you, but they're not going to be able to do that. So you really just have to kind of pick one thing at a time. That's what's actually possible. So I try to pick kind of like from a first principle standpoint, like what is the thing yep. that would make the biggest impact on their condition? And largely that's usually meditation for a lot of our clients, but um, mostly because there's hesitancy towards, you know, changing other things a lot of times. But for me, like if I look at my own life and I said, what is the biggest thing that impacted my mental health more than anything? It was jujitsu, like not therapy, not any medication, not anything, jujitsu. 
Like, and so, you know, like sometimes I feel like a, a you know, hypocrite saying like, oh, you know, do this, this. When I really look at, you know, me and mine, and so that helped way more than anything. And so I always try to find, but the reason why jujitsu for me was, hey, yeah, you know, I needed to get some aggression out. I needed to, to be able to have something that I'm continuously, slowly, it's really fulfilling to continuously, slowly grow on something. 100%. You know, and, and, and so a quick side note is yeah. the, the single most powerful um, psychological aspect that improves people's mental health is the felt sense of improved agency. Yeah. And agency is the feeling of my actions can actually improve my situation. And that's inherent in getting good at any type of game and a game that also works on your body, that gets you more into your body, that has community built into it. It's like a super habit. That's what it did for me. It was like starting jujitsu, you know, also exposed me to a ton of people who are also doing the same. They're doing positive things in their life, Community. you know, and I didn't grow up around, like when I was younger, I mean, it was like, you know, uh, drugs, you know, uh, all this, you know, really bad patterns. So when you all of a sudden, you know, meet a new community of people that's like, you know, uh, you know, essentially like, Hey, do you want to go, you know, do kettlebells out of the woods with me or something like that? Like, you know, just different class of people essentially, you know? Uh, I mean, there's so much to that. And I mean, I can't just like, you know, prescribe that to everybody, but man, you know, it's not always gonna be jujitsu, but it could be something else for somebody else, you know? So, you know, whatever it is. And so I always try to find from a lifestyle standpoint, like what is something that's going to hit multiple categories? So like for me, jujitsu hit like my social interaction, which was a, a problem. I was a bit too much of an introvert. Uh, and this was a way for me to experience social things. And like, as you can tell, like communication, sometimes it gives me anxieties and things like that, but, but I can roll with somebody and that is actually a, a form of communication. 100% it is. You know, one of my favorite things that ever happened in the jujitsu room is I, you know, you know, slap bump, uh, we start rolling with this guy. And afterwards I was like trying to say like, oh, hey, what was this move, whatever. And I realized this guy actually spoke Chinese. And what's funny is I felt like I knew him. Right. I completely know what you mean. I get the same thing when I play someone in basketball. Like that's my thing. And the way people play a game, especially if the game requires no language, it is the most revealing of their personality. And like, I feel like I understand the people that I play basketball with, especially if I get high before, that like, I feel like I know what type of father they are. I feel like I know what type of friend or yeah. what type of like romantic partner they are or like how they function as an employee or like how they relate to their own inner demons simply by how they perform the game. That's what I, what I mean is like, I knew that this guy was the type of person that wouldn't like give up on something too quickly. They just had this like, you know, crazy drive for things. So I knew so much about the true nature of this person from just like a six minute roll. And I never said a word and it's this like form of communication, you know, but anyway, uh, you know, sidetracked on, on, on jujitsu for a little while, but I, I, I try to find that for somebody because to me that that's going to pay out way more right. than what we can do during this Completely course of time, agree. you know? So, uh, and the thing that came up for me is like, I think making a list of like five or six of the habits that, you know, hit multiple categories and then let them pick. Yeah. And then you can support them and they feel like they chose it mm-hmm. as opposed to it being, but like if, if you curate a list, like for me, the things that come up is, you know, some form of physical communal practice like Aikido or Jiu Jitsu or karate or boxing or 
kickboxing. Um, for me, what I find for Western people, if they have resistance to meditation, is to get them to journal first because that actually allows them to use their conscious mind. And like the thing about journaling that feels so important is if you can teach people to be honest with themselves about what they think and how they feel, that feels like that starts to transform everything in their life. And for me personally, what I realized before I started journaling is I had basically gone my entire life without taking a single moment ever to be honest with myself about things that I didn't want to admit. And that the moment that I started this practice of like, this is where I admit shit to myself. It actually gave me the opportunity to even begin to be honest with people. And once I started doing that, I lost all my quote unquote friends, but it's because they weren't my friends. Mm. I had learned how to just be fake. And then this is wild. The first friend that I met after I started journaling and I started like clearing my bullshit was Paige. <laughs> and, and now I've been best friends with her for like a decade plus. Yeah, no, so I love that I'm in a stage in my life where I kind of no longer really, well, I do sure plenty, but edit so much of myself right. and, and shape shift to a given situation to fit into a given scenario. Like I'm completely okay with some people just not being down with who I am, being too much for some people, being not enough for others, but just being able to talk authentically in a situation and just being my kind of peculiar weird self. And if somebody isn't all right with that, I'm like really cool with that person fucking off out of my life. Like, and that's awesome to just continue to do. And you don't like ruminate at the end of the day with like, you know, just like, oh, I really could have said this. It's like, I just acted authentically in the moment. Like, I completely agree. And this is know? something that I talk about with people is that like, I also, like I hear people talk about this all the time that when they take a shower or they're in the car driving or they're going to bed at night that they rehash conversations that they have. I literally haven't done that in years because I've told the truth in the situation and I have this like faith belief that if I tell the truth, whatever is the response from that is the best possible thing that can happen. And if that means we're not friends or that means that they don't want to continue dating or whatever the outcome is, or if I don't have the job anymore, I told the truth. I don't think about it. Well, the funniest variable always happens when you actually are really open about, you know, and communicating about something that you are really afraid won't go well, that it almost always goes significantly better yes. than you would expect. Like you, you have that hard conversation and like some cool shit comes out of it when you expected like the world to fall down. And we have enough examples of that kind of like stacked up. Eventually you just start. So this is like really one of my first times in my life I've ever been like a manager over a lot of things. So which, you know, largely I spend a lot of time kind of having like kind of hard conversations with people. 100%. You know what I mean? And also like from a operations manager standpoint, like sometimes that's with clients that we have, you know, or, or the employees that we have, et cetera. That's hard to do. But, you know, if you're just like really open and communicate really honestly and people understand that you're just a human too and you try to like, you know, feel like it always just goes so well. And like, and then you finally stack up these examples of like, I don't really fear these hard conversations nearly as much anymore. You know and what's I mean? wild, man, is like to get to that point, it feels like a impossibly far away landscape to people who haven't even attempted to do it. Because like I, I, I feel the exact same thing. 
I've done it enough now where now I now have a felt knowing because of how many times it's worked out that it's always the way. But that first three months of trying to do that for the first time was so hard because it, I had to act off of faith. And like what a lot of people experience, and this comes up in the coaching program that I'm a part of, is that when people start to do this, they feel really alone for a while. But it's because they've just shed all the inauthentic relationships that have been poisoning them for fucking seven or ten years. And then once they find that first authentic friendship, it's it's a whole new world. You know, like cue the di- cue the Disney music. It's a whole new world because one in four people report not feeling like they have a single close friend. And the felt sense of loneliness is the, has the highest um, correlation to early death than any other factor that we're aware of. It's more deadly than obesity. It's more deadly than alcoholism. It's more deadly than smoking a pack a day. And it's more deadly than living in an area with high air pollution. What determines whether or not you are lonely is not how many people you have around you. It's how many people you feel see you. And so what allows for the felt sense of not being lonely is vulnerability. And to be vulnerable, you have to be honest. And like, once you have that first authentic friendship, your nervous system starts to operate in a way where you become tremendously more resilient to trauma, to things that happen in your life that could create depression or anxiety. And it seems to be what is the core most healing aspect of community and what relationships could be if people showed up in truth. So you said the word faith, which for some reason lit me up. And we were talking about dreams earlier. And I was thinking about this dream that I had that was um, related to faith. So a long time ago, I had a pretty vivid dream and I've had so I have a lot of lucid dreams and I have pretty vivid dreams mm-hmm. and and uh, also spent a lot of time working 24-hour shifts and night shifts and everything else. I've also had all these kind of odd, you know, trying to sleep during the day, weird dreams and all this, you know, goofy stuff. Yeah, quick side note for people is that if you're sleep deprived, you more quickly go into REM sleep. So mm-hmm. like an average sleep cycle, you aren't dreaming for the first 90, like 60 to 80 minutes and then the last 10 or 15 minutes of the first sleep cycle, that's when you hit REM sleep. And so it's why a lot of people don't become lucid because there's all that empty space. But if you're sleep deprived, you go right into REM sleep and almost all my lucid dreams come from when I'm sleep deprived. You ever play around with glantamine? No. Ooh, check it out. Okay. Middle of the night, wake up, four milligrams glantamine, instant release, lucid dreaming. I think there's a study on it like... 40 some odd percent more likely to have a lucid dream. So it's something we've, uh, has to do with choline, et cetera, but something where, you know, you, you can play around with, uh, uh, not medical advice, uh, uh, but because galantamine is actually a prescription medication for Alzheimer's as well, but it's available over the counter. So anyway, um, in an instant release form, which is, <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but, but anyway, um, something, something worth checking out, but, um, this dream, you know, so, I was in a phase of my life where I was actually trying to figure out what to do. So I was a, I was a paramedic and I wasn't making very much money and I had a house and kids and 
Uh, I was making like thirteen seventy an hour or something like that working EMS and I was trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I thought of going back to nursing school because nurses make uh, quite a bit more money. I thought it'd be a more sustainable thing. And uh, for me to be able to do that, I really needed to get this specific scholarship that would kind of pay for a lot of it. And so also the nursing program that I wanted to go into was, you know, they accepted about, you know, 40 some odd uh, out of like the, you know, 800 that would apply or whatever. So, you know, odds aren't that great. And honestly, I didn't have like the best GPA either because, you know, I was like pretty young when I went through uh, paramedic school and was working half the time. So I couldn't exactly nail everything. But my point is, is I had this weird dream where basically I was walking through the woods and I came up to this sort of like, you know, just a uh, cliffside and they were just dropped off. And I'm just sitting there like, where the hell am I going now? Like the, you know, the damn, it's a classic symbolic thing, right? And I look up and there's this owl on the tree and it just said, just take a step. And I was like, just take a step. And he's like, yeah, bitch, I'm a talking owl. Okay. Like, you know, this is a dream. Just take a step. You know what I mean? And so I close my eyes and I do in this dream and I look down and the leaves are like rushing up underneath me wow. and forming, you know, a path to the other wow. side. And I walk across and I wake up and I'm like, man, if there wasn't a fucking, you know, a more symbolic, you know, thing here, I think what I need to do is quit my fucking job and uh, put the two weeks in and apply to these two things and just see if I happen to get them. And I got both of them. And you know, I'm here right now talking to you right now because of that decision and that dream. But, you know, of course, most of our life is these little, you know, little things that add up to some other place. But Transcend was that way too. Um, you know, I've never opened a medical clinic. I don't know all about it. Um, I, I didn't, I don't even really honestly understand how I was able to do it. Um, it was a big thing of just this needs to happen and just sort of stepping in faith that, you know, the dots were going to connect and they have, and they just keep doing it. And when I meet people, it's funny, like Paige, as an example, she came in and I'm just like, this is peculiar. And I, I'm just, I'm listening. I'm listening to the universe. I'm just like, look, I don't know why this person is in front of me. I don't know, but they came here. Recently, a nurse practitioner came into my uh, office She's crying. She just left this other academy clinic. She's like, I don't really like the way they practice. I'm just like, man, I'm just a part of a thing that's just happening. You know what I mean? And I'm just saying yes to stuff. And I'm just believing that it's going to continuously work out. And it's just really funny how it just keeps doing that. You know what I mean? And I just, I don't know. One of my, if I message to my son, if I pass away earlier than ability to, to give it to you is just... Just fucking walk in faith, man. Just because it's no way to fucking live. It's, it's, it's no way to fucking live to just not believe that something isn't going to work out and, and, and not try to do the things that you want to do. I mean, most of the things that I've done in my life, uh, I shouldn't have been able to do. You know, I, I have so many learning disabilities. I have... Uh, so many things standing in my ability to be able to do some of the things that I've been able to do so far. Um, you know, I shouldn't have been able to be a flight paramedic. I have freaking Erlen syndrome and I can't even, you know, uh, see depth well and they let me operate under night vision, night vision, you know, I mean, I, I can't believe, you know, driving a damn ambulance when you have depth perception problems. I mean, half the fucking things I've been able to do despite all of this, you know, 
Anyway, my point is, is just like faith is really important. And whether that's faith in something greater than yourself or just damn faith in yourself, you know, that's really when life starts getting really fucking cool is when you just start putting one step in front of the other and expect shit to fucking work out uh, and just know that it's possible. And you start stacking up those examples where it does. And so you start believing it's true. And that's when faith becomes knowing. You know, like I feel that faith transforms into wisdom when you get enough of those examples, but you only get those examples by taking the faith steps in the beginning. And to bring this full circle, your psyche produced an event that you had to take the action in the imaginal realm so that you could do it in the physical realm. And that's what ketamine allows people to do. That's what we're doing, man. These these weird symbolic ventures that don't make any sense. I had a session earlier today woman explained that basically she was playing with trolls for a while in the ketamine space. It was real goofy. And she was like, is that good? Is that bad? And I'm like, oh, you don't want trolls. Oh God, you don't need trolls. I'm just messing with her, right? You know what I mean? And she's just like, really? And I'm like, no, 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 it, it doesn't matter. Like, uh, I don't know exactly what you're churning on through that like symbolic thing exactly. And you apparently don't either, but your unconscious mind just did a thing and did a process. You know what I mean? And now your ego is trying to figure it out. And when you just have somebody just like identify that in fact, like this, this separation between these two things and just like, oh shit, my ego is trying to like explain out this thing, you know, then they get a picture of what their ego actually is. You know, when they get really destructed in this way and then they go, oh man, this voice in my head, this internal monologue, it's this construct of all these things, these ways that other people would have, you know, have talked to me through my period of time. That's my dad's voice. That's my yep. mom's voice. That's some yep. friend that I have. This is yep. somebody that I idolize. You know, this is somebody I know how to step into. And, and, and all these personas we create and all this other stuff. And we're just constantly moving, you know, between what, you know, what may be. And it's when you destruct all of that down and you actually learn, like right now, the voice that is inside of my, like, who is, who's that one? You know what I mean? Like when you realize you're just this blend of all this shit 100%. and you can kind of pick, you know, in a given moment who you need to be and like work with those archetypes. And like, you know, I was in my car, I was thinking about like, which archetype do I need to like step into in this situation? Because I know that I've repetitively been able to do that in all these difficult situations that I faced, you know what I mean? So like wh which one today, you know, is the, is the one that I need to do to be able to, to appropriately demonstrate what I'm trying to say to you and to the world through this, you know, and anyway, you know, the one I picked, I'm gonna keep that secret. <laughs> That's okay. Well, the truth is you have motherfucking crushed it. You did not seem like speaking is something that you're afraid to do. And I love what you are doing. And um, where can people go connect with your work more uh, first for people who live here and then also for people who don't live here. Like, are, are there any options? Like, where can people find and get the service that you're providing? So if you're considered, so if you have mental health conditions of any kind, depression, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera, past trauma, considering ketamine treatment really needs to be, it's probably not going to be talked to you about by your therapist. It may not be talked to you about your psychiatrist. They usually think about that in a last-ditch effort, and that really shouldn't be the case. Um, so considering it up front, but B, if you're going to do it, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, 
a clinic that has therapists on staff that are ketamine assisted psychotherapy trained and work with that. And then C, you know, we're here in Austin. You can 512-522-6833, transcendketamine.com. Feel free to call us, talk to Paige. Yeah. She'll hook it up. She's very knowledgeable. I've trained her to say what I would say. And uh, furthermore, we treat patients flying in all the time. You know, I treated a patient from Idaho the other day, came down and did a stay and left back. And I actually think that's a beautiful way to do it because you literally get the opportunity to kind of step 100%. out of your thing yep. that you've been doing all your patterns, everything, fly to a different place, stay somewhere else for a little while and go back and figure out if you want to continue any of those patterns or not. And that's a really cool thing. Yep. Will, thank you so much for what you do and for coming on the podcast. And I'm sure that we're going to be interacting more. Thank you, brother. Oh, yeah. Thanks.